0: Amen. Please turn to 1st Chronicles chapter 29. We're almost to the end of the David series. 1st Chronicles 29 beginning to read at verse 1. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, And the work is great because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for things of gold and the silver for things of silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Then the leaders of the father's houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds with the officers over the king's work offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also rejoiced greatly." Therefore David blessed the Lord before the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things, and now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people, and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes, to do all these things, and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the King. Amen. Father, it is our glory to worship you. It is our glory to serve you. It is our glory to acknowledge that all that we have and are and do really uh, should redound to your glory because you are the one who has enabled these things. And so I pray that as I bring the Word, as we reflect upon it, that your Holy Spirit would shine His spotlight in our hearts and sanctify us and draw us ever closer to the goal that you have set for us in life. We love you and we continue to commit this part of the worship service to you and pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Back in 2002, uh, Rick gillespie mobley uh, gave a sermon on stewardship it was a pretty good sermon it was more of a devotional than it was a, a sermon but he gave an illustration that i just thought was outstanding at the beginning of that sermon he shared a story that i think beautifully illustrates a major problem in evangelical christianity He told uh, about a father who wanted to do something special for his five-year-old son, Jimmy. He told him to get his coat on. We're going to go out and give you a treat. And the son's always eager to go out on uh, treats with his dad. But this time he said, and you can pick anything you want. Well, little Jimmy is just beside himself with excitement. He's jumping up and down and he says, well, I want McDonald's French fries. Now, those of you who have been a little bit jaded about McDonald's, don't spoil the story, okay? He's a five-year-old. He really loves McDonald's uh, french fries. And anyway, they went to the local McDonald's, and Jimmy was expecting a small-size french fries, but his eyes lit up when his dad ordered from the cashier a super-sized french fries and a Coke. And... Uh, After Dad had paid for the snack, uh, Jimmy was almost dancing with anticipation during the prayer at the table. Uh, Dad could see, he just could hardly wait to dive into those fries and as soon as the prayer was over he starts eating these fries with obvious delight. He just loves these french fries and of course it brought delight to the Dad's heart because It was so easy to bring this kind of pleasure to his son. What could be easier than buying, you know, a cheap uh, thing of French fries for him? And so enjoying the moment, the dad reached over to get a couple of fries to uh, share with his son, and to his surprise, his son immediately pulled the fries away from dad and kind of made his arms into a, a, a kind of a fortress, and he said, no, these are mine, and dad was shocked. He didn't know what to say. He looked at his son uh, and just was a little bit perplexed for a moment. And during those moments, he had an epiphany and kind of an opening of his eyes of how God must feel when God asks for a couple of fries from the container of our life. Uh, He was thinking to himself, what is this little rascal thinking? You know, I just wanted a couple of fries. After all, I'm the source of these fries. And I supersized them so I could eat them with him anyway. You know, he didn't want to share anything with me. Uh, What is going on in his little mind? I paid for them. I gave them to him. This was my idea from the start. And apparently this little pipsqueak of a son has forgotten that I'm a whole lot stronger than he is. So it looks silly for him to be guarding, protecting those flies. Now, he's not going to force the kid to give any fries. But he thought, that just is so silly for my son to do that. And then he thought, why did I even want a couple of fries? It's not like I'm hungry. And if I was, I could have gotten my own container of fries. In fact, I could have bought 10 containers of fries. It's not like I needed uh, those couple of fries. I just wanted to share in his moment of joy and have him invite me into his moment of joy. And one or two fries would not have made much difference to him as an adult. But he wanted Jimmy to invite him into this wonderful little world that he had made possible rather than excluding him from that world. And I think it's such a wonderful metaphor of what often goes wrong with our stewardship. God has given every one of you a metaphorical bag of french fries. Okay, Some of you have small-sized uh, portions, some of you have large bags of french fries, some of them are super-sized french fries, some of them are curly fries, some of them are jalapeno flavored fries but every one of you has been given at least some stuff okay and like that dad, God desires to sit down at the table with us and to fellowship with us and to have some connection time with us and when he reaches over to help himself to a couple of those fries Too often we say, no, God, those are mine. Get your own fries. Okay? And it hurts God's feelings, anthropomorphically speaking, of course. Okay? Uh, It's not as if God needs our fries. He doesn't need anything. He made this world. He made us. He made our minds. He enabled us to have the jobs that we have. He prospered us in so many different ways. I mean, if he needed fries, with a snap of the fingers, he could make billions of fries. He could smother the room in fries. Okay? He doesn't need them. That's not why he's asking us to give. He's asking us to give because he wants us to experience some of the delight of what it means to become more and more conformed to the image of his generous character. David and the men in this chapter had it right. God had prospered them with extra, extra supersized french fries, okay? Uh, They had... All the money. It was just incredible how much money. We'll, we'll calculate it for you a little bit later on. But they not only gladly shared their french fries with God, they were giving above and beyond. Here, Lord, have more. This is my delight to be able to give uh, to your temple. And rather than looking at every word, you know, even as I was reading this, I was thinking, there's so much more that we could pull out of this. I just want to give a quick surface Um, application of 15 different things that can make our stewardship totally different than uh, uh, Jimmy's uh, uh, selfish uh, holding on uh, to his french fries, his hoarding. And the first attitude that I see in this passage is an overall right perspective. It's a God-centered perspective. Verse 1 says... The temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. And when we look at his prayer later on, we will see that David applies this to everything in life, not just to the temple. And I especially love uh, verse 11, which says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head Overall, he had a God-centered perspective on what he gave, and he had a God-centered perspective on what he kept for himself. Jimmy's attitude that excluded his dad uh, hurt his dad's feelings, not because the dad needed french fries, but because the son had a basically false view of life that broke relationship. And in the same way, we have a false view of reality when we lack stewardship. And it's false because God does indeed own all things. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. In other words, he's saying, because this is a true fact, all of life is God-centered. Of Him, to Him, through Him are all things. We need to be God-centered. We need to glorify Him in absolutely everything. Or we are failing to be stewards. Most of you have memorized 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And yet it's so easy, even though intellectually we know this is true, to act as if that that does not include the raking of my yard, and it does not include my plumbing, and it does not include computer programming that I am doing. God is in none of their thoughts is the description that the Bible gives of unbelievers but it should not be the description of believers. And there are no exceptions. In Colossians 3, verse 23, Paul was talking to slaves who no doubt were tempted to hate the work that they were involved in They were not willingly applying for those jobs as slaves. They'd been conquered, they'd been taken unwillingly there. And some of them may indeed not have had any purpose for what they were doing, and yet Paul not only gives them a purpose for their jobs, He tells them, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. He wanted them sweeping the floors and cleaning the bathrooms as to the Lord and not to men. How do we have a constantly God-centered focus? Well, in this sermon, we won't have the time to dig into it uh, in too much depth, but let me at least give you a starting point that can get you on the road to developing this kind of an attitude. I highly recommend that you either read or you listen to the MP3 files. You can download for free off of the web Uh, a really, really old book by Brother Lawrence called Practicing the Presence, or sometimes it's called The Practice of the Presence. And the book initially is a little bit hard to implement, but the more you have a continual sense of God's presence in your life, the easier it will be to do everything to His glory. And true stewardship will be more and more attainable. Now, when you first start practicing it, you know, you go for three or four hours without even thinking about God. And you think, oh, here I've gone for the last few hours, and you have a hard time implementing it, but stick with it. Eventually, you can come to the place Where, like Calvin, there's not a minute of the day where you do not sense God's presence with you, as Calvin worded it, "Quorum deo," living your uh, your life before uh, the face of God. And when that is true, all of the other points that we're going to look at become a lot easier. Okay, look at verse two. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might, gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. But I want you to especially note that phrase, I have prepared with all my might. David had the right degree of effort. He didn't do just enough to be able to skate by in life. And it takes the first point to be able to achieve the second point. We have to see a reason for things before we're going to be motivated to do them uh, with all of our might. And it's usually because we really enjoy what we are doing. Now, you young people who like throwing the football and, and, and playing hard... Uh, it, is, it can be a very hard game, but I doubt any of you moan and groan. Oh, why do I have to play football? You know, it's so hard. It just wears me out. No, it is hard, but you delight in doing it, right? And so you put all your energies into it. And really the same is true of our stewardship. Uh, one of the reasons later on in this chapter we're going to be seeing that David's enjoyment of the Lord is a key to his success is because it energizes us. Nehemiah 8, verse 10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, you're not going to have the daily strength to do everything you do, going the extra mile, doing it with all of your might, if you don't have the joy of the Lord. And you're not going to have the joy of the Lord continually if point number one is not present in your life. If you're not able to live every every portion of your day, Coram Deo, before the face of God. So point number one, enables you to fulfill Ecclesiastes 9.10 and to do so joyfully. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But then I also see a right direction in David's affections. It's not just his mind, that's point number one, and it's not just his will, point number two, his emotions have been captured as well. Now, of course, all three are connected, aren't they? Uh, if David was mindlessly doing all of these things because a taskmaster was there, you know, cracking the whip and getting him to move forward, it would have been drudgery. But because his affections were involved, uh, it, uh, it gave him an energizing. He, he wanted to please the Lord. David and God are in this cause together, and this cause energizes him in the work that he is doing. So verse 3 says, Moreover, I have set my affection on the house of my God. Excuse me. Because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given, etc. His emotions, his affections are driving his actions. And Jesus says that our affections or emotions have a great deal to do with stewardship, whether we're good stewards or not. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now David had set his affections, his emotions on this house of God because he's so delighted in God. He wanted to please God with this, and he knew it would be pleasing to him. And that is exactly what Colossians 3, 1 through 4, says that our affections should be set upon. It says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So the bottom line is you need to ask yourself, where is my affection? Or the way Jesus worded it is, what is your treasure? What is truly your treasure? That will hugely impact whether you have stewardship that is filled with joy. So the first three points show the connection of mind, will, and emotions in stewardship. Jimmy's little mind, will, and emotions were focused on creation, on the French fries, and that meant that the French fries had become idols. They really were an idol. And from the time of Adam and Eve on, there has been this tendency to allow things to become idols, and when idolatry creeps into our heart, it breaks relationships with humans, it breaks relationships with God, it negatively impacts even our approach to creation. Now the next point shows that stewardship is not really about getting out your calculator and figure out how much do I I tithe. It's not a dead calculated mathematical formula. That's the way that the Pharisees approached it. They were so precise in their tithing measurements, they took pride in this. Even the wildly growing mint, you know how mint just takes over uh, a yard. The wildly growing mint and anise and cumin were tithed. They gave exactly 10% to their local synagogue. And yet Jesus says that they lacked justice, mercy, and faith. In Matthew 23, verse 23, and in Luke 11:42, 42, which is the parallel passage, he says they were tithing without love. Okay. So there really is a logical order we're going to be seeing in how the Holy Spirit has crafted this whole chapter on stewardship. Because true stewardship flows from the first three points, love drives it to go the extra mile. And David definitely went the extra mile in verses 3 through 5. Take a look at that. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. I want you to notice that phrase, over and above. He'd already prepared generously for the house of God. But he's so delighted with God, he gives over and above that. He goes beyond that. He's going the extra mile. And I love it when I see Christians not only tithing, but when they find delight in giving generously to special needs. And I've seen that in this church, and several people have commented on it, that this is a church that has been incredibly generous when it comes to people who have special needs or missions projects uh, uh, above and beyond uh, the tithe. And by itself, to me, that shows that the Spirit of God is at work in this church okay? It's a sign of health. Uh, In the illustration that I started with, dad was very generous with the son, and he wanted his son to learn that being generous can be fun as well. He wanted his son to become more like him, to become hospitable. And our Heavenly Father doesn't want us pinching pennies with himself or with other people. He doesn't want us offering our french fries, but with bad attitudes, like, oh, I hope God doesn't take too many french fries. Oh, I hope he doesn't take too many french fries over here. No, he wants us to have glad hearts that are willing to go above and beyond. This is true, spirit-given stewardship. And then David asks a question that connects consecration with stewardship. Take a look at verse 5. He asks, who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Well, they all wanted to consecrate themselves to the Lord, but what is the evidence that they are consecrated? The verses go on to indicate that they are giving generously, willingly, with a loyal heart, just like David is. And so giving can be a test of whether we are consecrated or not. Not just any giving, the kind of giving exemplified in these 15 points. And the reason I bring this up is it's so easy for us to deceive ourselves in thinking that we're a whole lot better than we really are. I suspect at least some of us thought we were doing pretty well and how we loved one another and how we loved our families before Rodney gave the sermon last week uh, uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as he's outlining these 15 or so, it was about 15, wasn't it? Or so, characteristics of love, we begin to think, oh, wow, yeah, I messed up on that one, that one. And our estimation of ourselves begins to diminish. Well, it's a similar situation with consecration. As we look at these 15 points in this chapter, we may come to the conclusion our consecration is not really as great as we thought it was. So I want you to think of these 15 points not so much as things that we add over time, but as 15 windows that give us a sight of the inner heart that is being transformed. If two or three of these windows are broken, then they let in the cold, okay? And it cools, it chills our heart. Our consecration is measured by our stewardship, which means if we're not at least tithing, some of the other points can be questioned. The next thing that I see is that because there truly was consecration to the Lord, The joy of giving spread like contagion. There was a culture that began to develop. Verses 6 through 8 describe a right response in others. Then the leaders of the father's houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, with the officers over the king's work, offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents, 10,000 derricks of gold, Uh, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. One of the signs of enthusiastic stewardship is the desire that other people, that our children become stewards and other people become stewards because as we experience the incredible joy that God gives to us of sharing in this way, we want others to be able to share in that joy. And there's a contagion that arises within the church. It's almost like there's a culture of giving that begins to develop. And as I've mentioned, uh, at least with some of you, there must be incredibly generous hearts out there because uh, the treasurer will tell you we have we have been very very generous far more than what most churches give you know to special causes so that's a, that's a great thing but let me give you something that's not in your outlines this giving was publicly done it's not in secret sometimes people wonder are we allowed to give publicly yes you are It was publicly done. Jesus gave publicly to charity and he gave privately to charity. And so the question comes, then why in the Sermon on the Mount did Jesus emphasize this point that when you give, you should give in a way that's so secret that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing? And I want to just quickly address that, that issue. He did not give that instruction because public prayer is wrong or public giving is wrong. He did so because most of the things in the Sermon on the Mount are testing the character of our Christianity. Are we doing our Christianity simply from our own flesh in a way that any Pharisee could do? Or is there evidence of the Holy Spirit within us? And just take prayer for example. If you are driven, you've got a hunger for prayer when there's nobody that sees you. You're in the secret place, in the closet, Wow, that's an indication it's the Spirit of God who is driving you to prayer. Because social expectations make it a little bit easier to pray when you're expected to pray. You know, others are around. Well, it's the same with giving. When you give in a way that nobody knows you are giving, you're not getting any credit whatsoever. It's a test of whether you've got the steward's heart that says, yes, Lord, I delight in giving. It's not for me. In fact, I don't even want anybody to know about this particular gift. Now, it's not against public giving. It's not against uh, giving that is uh, very open. It's just every once in a while, it's a good idea to test the character of our heart. Is my heart something that uh, has the Holy Spirit producing supernatural stewardship? And I also want to comment on the enormous amount of money that was being given on this day. It just is astounding. And I I won't add it all up for you, but let me just give a little bit. Besides the bronze, iron, wood, onyx, marble, turquoise, and other precious stones, which by themselves would have been incredibly costly. Let's just look at the gold and the silver. The text says that David gave 3,000 talents of gold. Now, a talent was about 75 pounds, so that's 225,000 pounds of gold. That's 3.6 million gold eagles, you know, one-ounce eagle coins. That's a lot of money, Three point, 3.6 million one-ounce gold eagles. He gave 7,000 talents of silver, which is about 525,000 pounds of silver, or 8.4 million silver eagles. Again, a lot of money. Now, these leaders were generous as well. They gave 375,000 pounds of gold. And actually, I just noticed that that's a little bit off because there were derricks of gold as well that were given. And those were even bigger. Um, 750,000 pounds of silver, tons of bronze and iron. And when you add it all up, commentators say, this offering was in the billions of dollars. It's astounding that on one day, this much was collected for the temple. Now, some people might be tempted to say, you know, that's just not right. You shouldn't give that much money to one cause. And they focus on how much is giving, being given away. I've seen people say, man, I can't tie that to one local church or anything like that. But just think of it this way. They had the money to be able to give. God had blessed them incredibly. And indeed, we will see that God loves to bless those with stewards' hearts with more and more. And one of the weird things that I have discovered is that people generally tend to give a smaller and smaller percentage of their entire income the more wealthy they become. And this is true even on a corporate scale. You know, the the Dalit churches that I work with in India? Incredibly poor churches. But percentage-wise, they give far more than the American church does, in terms of percent of what your uh, income might be. Uh, I have known people that as they became wealthy, they have given less and less percentage of their uh, total wealth uh, away. Uh, here's a true story. Peter Marshall, former chaplain of the United States Senate, said that he had a man come to him one time and say, I have a problem. I've been tithing for some time. It wasn't too bad when I was making $20,000 a year. I could afford to give up $2,000. But now that I'm making $500,000, there is no way I can afford to give away $50,000 a year. And Peter Marshall didn't give him any advice. He simply said, yes, sir, I see that you have a problem. I think we ought to pray about it. Is that all right? The man agreed. So Dr. Marshall bowed his head and prayed. Dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Please reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. (laughs) (laughs) So here were wealthy people. This is evidence not that they're wealthy. This is evidence of the work of God's Holy Spirit in their midst. Here were wealthy people who tend to be stingy, wealthy people who no doubt already gave the three tithes of the Old Testament. You know what those three tithes are, right? The first 10% right off the top went to the local synagogue. Second 10% went to help your family and if you could afford it to have other people go to Jerusalem for a vacation and uh, for a, a spiritual conference to refresh your bodies, to refresh your spirits. And then the third tithe... Uh, was once every three years, and it was once every three years so that they could save up a big lump sum to help some poor person get started in a business, to really give them a, a boost. So they're already giving 23 and a third percent, and yet here these wealthy people think, this is not enough, I want to give more, and they do give more. Now because you guys aren't wealthy, you think, oh yeah, they've got lots of money. I just want you to understand what a miracle it is for wealthy people to be giving above that Twenty-three and a third percent giving so generously William Colgate was such a man he founded the soap and toothpaste company that uh bears the name is it Paul Mallow Colgate anyway it's Colgate with another hyphen on it but his heart was so captured by God's heart for generosity that he wanted to give more and more and more And most wealthy people do not do that. Now, when he started, he was dirt poor. In fact, he had to leave his home because they couldn't afford to even have him in the home. He was homeless, and yet he insisted for every bit of money that he made, the first 10% off the top uh, went to God. But it became a habit of his life to want to honor God more and more with his money. So he started giving uh, 20% as the lord prospered him and then he told his uh, treasurer i want you to give 30%. Now i want you to give 40 and 50% uh, of the income. That's not the norm today, but to me it shows we need a revival. We desperately need a revival in the church of Jesus Christ. Now look at the right result in verse 9. Others got caught up in the sheer delight of giving. It says, Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord, and King David also rejoiced greatly. Jimmy missed the joy of sharing his French fries, and as a result, it dampened the joy of his dad as well. Just as there is a compounded, infectious joy in giving, there is an inverse loss of joy in a community that does not have people with stewards' hearts. Too often we are calculated and we are stingy in our giving and we lose the joy of giving. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But this I say, He who sows sparingly, he's likening your offerings to sowing seed in the ground, right? He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now this is basically saying that the kid who has fun sharing his french fries with the dad has a dad who loves going out with the son and treating him to french fries and to uh, other uh, treats uh, more readily. And the spiritual son who delights in sharing with God and with his people finds God delighting in giving more proverbial french fries. Into our lives. Paul goes on to say in verse 7 and following So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, He has dispersed abroad, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. When we can once catch the delight of giving, generous giving, we enter into a whole new world. You cannot be touched with God's generous heart without being impacted positively and impacting others positively. Now, the next thing that I see is the right honor. Verse 10: Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Stewards aren't braggarts. They may be perfectly honest and open about what they are doing, but they're doing it for God's honor, for His praise. And when we are joyful stewards, we're always looking for ways to honor God. Uh, We don't have to be asked. We've got eyes that see. The Holy Spirit helps us to see needs and, and to help us to respond to those needs. And that's the kind of culture that we want to become enriched in. Well, when you have all of that, you've got the steward's heart that can say in verse 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. A steward sees nothing as belonging to himself. Nothing. We're not like Jimmy, fending off God's hands from our french fries. If God wants one of our french fries, we offer them all to him. Here, Daddy, have more. I mean, it's our delight to share them with him. A steward is there for God, not for himself, And we can measure the degree to which we have a right relationship with God by our giving. If you don't tithe, you have not even gotten to the starting line of uh, being a steward. Tithing proves we are steward, and giving goes above and beyond, shows God's heart gripping our heart more and more. We're becoming more like Daddy, less like Jimmy. But this, in turn, gives us faith for the future rather than fear. And let me explain what I mean by that. When people first start tithing, they don't know how in the world they're going to make ends meet. They're already not making ends meet in many cases. Uh, They fear that if they pay God the first 10% off the top without even thinking about the bills, automatically God is paid first, that their life is going to unravel forgetting that god is the one who governs their lives by their his providence forgetting he's the one who loves to bless us because they have fear god does not bless fear is the exact inverse of faith when you fear things they tend to happen when you have faith in god concerning things they always happen But fear demands to be fulfilled just like faith demands to be fulfilled. It is the inverse of faith. And uh, I saw a book when I was doing research for this. um, It was called something along the lines of, I'm tithing, why can't I make ends meet? And it goes through some of the issues and fear was one of those issues. If you approach this with fear rather than with faith, it will not be blessed by God. In Haggai, the post-exilic community was facing famine and financial difficult times, and they were tempted to skip the tithe until times got better. They probably were thinking, hey, I'll catch up later. Well, Haggai told them they had it all backwards. The reason they had poor times was because they were not putting God first in their finances. As a result, Haggai said, You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore... The heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. See, faith understands that. Faith doesn't doubt the wisdom of following God because God controls all of life. Faith does what God requires no matter what the consequences. Faith pays God the first fruits, not the leftovers after everything else is paid. Faith pays God the 10% off the top of the check and trust God to give the wisdom to pay the rest of our bills. And you know, since the time that I was a kid, it's never even been a remote temptation for me to withhold the tithe from God, even when times were tight. We've had plenty of times in the past when things were tight, but the tithe was not something, it was a non-negotiable in my philosophy of life. So from the time I was a little child, I mean, we were toddlers, and we were given allowance and paying tithe off of that allowance. We were taught to honor God first with our finances. Faith does not do what Jimmy did. Faith knows God is generous and loves to give metaphorical French fries. It's a trust issue. And David expresses his full trust in God's goodness, God's generosity, God's promised provision in verse 12. He says, both riches and honor come from you And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Uh, David was in effect saying, Father, you hold the French fries uh, and enjoy them with me. And thank you for being such a generous God. If you're a Christian who doubts the wisdom of the three tithes of the Old Testament, okay, set that aside for a while. Maybe later you might be convinced of it. But at least try the first tithe the tithes of the local church, the the first 10%. And as you do it, do not do it in fear. Do it with an absolute confidence that God, the God who cannot lie, will provide for you. Some people start as stewards and then fear sidetracks them. But let me end this particular point by reading Malachi 3, verses 8 through 12, which deals with both the tithes as well as the offerings that went above and beyond the tithes. Uh, Malachi 3, 8 through 12. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. What an incredible, incredible promise. But despite that incredible promise, the Israelites failed to believe it. They just doubted God's word. They thought, surely that cannot be. And so the very next words in Malachi say this. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Here's God's answer. You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? You see how critical faith is to continued stewardship that pleases God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, "...without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him." He does not love to reward the jimmies of this world, but He loves to reward those who share their french fries and everything that they have and everything that they are and they share it with delight with God and with anyone else whom God wants to them to share it with. He loves to share more and more French fries with them. So here's the question, do you want the blessings of Malachi chapter 3? Then don't begrudge God when he asks for the 10% of your fries and maybe on occasion he might take a couple of other fries. Don't begrudge him. But little Jimmy illustrates the difference between selfish excitement and true gratitude. Jimmy was so excited when his dad was going to take him to get some French fries, he was dancing with delight. Now, you might assume he's got gratitude. No, he didn't have any gratitude. That was a counterfeit of gratitude. Gratitude is focused on the giver. He's more interested in the gift than he is in the giver. There's a big difference between uh, the two. And um, I want you to look at the gratitude that David has, even as he hands over the fries to his father, God. Verse 13, now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Does that seem out of place? He's not putting these out and waiting, "Uh, God, you haven't thanked me yet. No, that's not his attitude at all. He's just given billions of dollars and he thanks God for the privilege of being able to share in God's awesome program. Uh, He feels so humble that, that God would even use him and take his money that it delights his heart. He's thankful to God. Now, it would have made all the difference in the world if little Jimmy had just pushed the carton of fries a little closer to his dad and say... Thanks, God, Dad. I love going out with you. Have some more French fries. It would have made all the difference in the world. Such a simple gesture. Now, of course, that takes humility, and verses 14 through 16 definitely show humility in David's heart. David says, but who am I, and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. David realized that the French fries he was offering to God were French fries God had given to him. In fact, the cycle of God giving to David and of David giving to God and of God giving more to David is primarily a relationship cycle of love not a casino slot machine cycle of selfishness it all demonstrates principle number one that david was god-centered not self-centered not man-centered not even creation-centered and that all takes humility you know a cross-centered view of life has the eye struck out it's not about me myself and i The cross strikes out the eye, and it's all about God. It's about giving Him the glory, right? It's all about the incredible, astounding relationship that we can have with the Creator of the universe. Are you catching a little bit of a glimpse of the joy that is involved in true stewardship? When you do, it really does make stewardship a pure delight. David's view of stuff can also be seen in verse 15, which we just read. Let me read it again. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. In effect, David is saying, the days that we live down here on earth are just a blip on the radar screen of eternal life. And we can lose anything that's in this life we can lose our money our stocks our investments our family our houses we can lose all of those things they're just like a shadow and so we shouldn't really be thinking about laying up money as our security now don't get me wrong we are commanded both the old testament and the new testament to save up for retirement to save up for emergencies we must have savings And we're even supposed to pass on to our children a saving. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't save up money. I'm saying it should not be our treasure. It should not be our idol. It should not be our security. And when it becomes our security, we've totally missed the point. The point is to find delight in serving God, whether he gives us a lot or gives us a little, serving God with every dime. And part of serving God is setting aside some for our children and our grandchildren. Some of serving God is not being reckless with our money and having something for retirement. But the key point is it's got to be God-centered. Now, hurrying on, I've kind of summarized verses 17 through 19 as having right heart attitudes, and rather than spelling them out, just see if you can catch some of them as I read these verses, beginning at verse 17. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. He knows it's going to take grace for this kind of an attitude to be perpetuated. But he prays, Lord, may it be so. May we have a culture of generous giving like this. So he says, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision." David's heart attitudes were right, and it was reflected in how he handled money. Have any of you guys seen the bumper sticker that says, um, Tithe if you love Jesus, any idiot can honk. <laughs> Great bumper sticker. Tithe if you love Jesus, any idiot uh, can honk. Finances really do test our heart attitudes, and it's no wonder to me that Jesus speaks so much in the Gospels about Finances. They're a big, important part of spiritual walk before God. And we're going to end with the right kind of worship that flows from stewardship. In chapter 1 of Job, we see an incredibly wealthy man who is driven to worship. So it's possible to be incredibly wealthy and to be a steward. You don't have to give away all your money. Here's Job, has a heart before the Lord that is upright and perfect. So here's an incredibly wealthy man who is driven to worship. And then we see Satan taking away everything that he has. Here is a man who is poverty-stricken, who is stripped, who is hurting, and yet he's still driven to worship. It says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When we can worship in difficult circumstances, it reflects the degree to which we have a steward's heart. Take a look at 1 Chronicles 29, verse 20. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. What's with that? prostrating themselves on their face before the Lord. Well, I really believe it's at the heart of worship. The closer any person in the Bible got to God's presence, the more likely they were to either be on their knees or fully prostrate on their face. You read through some of the worship scenes where people in the book of Revelation come face to face with God's throne. They're always on their face before the Lord. In Matt Redman's book, Face Down, he says, face-down worship is the overflow of a heart humbled and amazed by the glory of God. It is easy to be a steward when you are overwhelmed with God's worth and you are overwhelmed with your own unworthiness. It's easy to give when you know God's generosity to you, a sinner. Indeed, giving is so joyful because it's simply Receiving such overflowing streams of God's goodness and generosity in your own life that you want it to flow out of your innermost being. You want it to bless other people. You're sharing His heart. And it's my prayer that every one of us would be cured of the Jimmy syndrome and be so overwhelmed with God's goodness and generosity that it's the natural impulse of our hearts to say, Here, Lord, have some more French fries. And what else can I get you, Lord? I am so thankful to be able to eat at the table that you have spread so richly for me. Thank you for being my Father. I love you. Okay? May God's heart that is overflowing with generosity capture our hearts and make genuine, generous stewardship the permanent culture of this church. Amen. Father, we thank you for your generosity. With David, we are blown away with the fact that we can even be involved in serving you. You don't need us. You could, with a word from your mouth, metaphorically create billions of french fries. You don't need anything that we give, but you have given us the incredible privilege of entering into the joy that you share as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in giving to each other and giving to us. Father, we want our hearts to be washed clean of the Jimmy Syndrome. We want our hearts to reflect your heart. Transform us, Lord. Transform us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want by the power of your Holy Spirit to be transformed from glory to glory. Do this, Father, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your Son, and that we might no longer grieve your Holy Spirit. We want to bring delight to you, Father. We don't want to hurt your feelings, so to speak. But we want to bring pleasure to you, even as you bring such pleasure to us in sharing so richly in our lives. And so we pray that you would bless this, your people, with an increased stewardship and an increased delight in sharing this stewardship as you direct them, as you call them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.